Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is the section of Scripture that we're now working through for our brief little break from the Gospel according to Matthew. I'm going to read our passage in just a minute. Before I do, I wanted to tell you an experience I had as a young boy growing up in church. Uh, There's not many of you that grew up in a brethren tradition, but I did. The Brethren Church has a practice that they do at least once a year, maybe twice a year, sometimes more often. And the practice is called the threefold communion service. So as a kid, when we would sometimes go to church, we would have a normal church service like you're experiencing now. We would sing some songs, we'd read some scripture, you'd hear a sermon. And then maybe at the end of the service, you, you would take the bread and the cup like we, we are going to do today and we have done in the past. But on these special occasions, they would have a, a separate meeting as a church. Like, let's say a Sunday evening, we would come together and we would meet in a, a large area like a gymnasium or an auditorium. Uh, and we would have tables out instead of chairs or pews. There'd be an entire meal that would be served together. But before you'd eat the meal, you'd be separated men and women into different rooms, like a side classroom. And there would be these chairs set up with basins of water, and you would sit down and someone would lead you through what's called a foot washing ceremony. And you would literally take off your shoes and you would wash the feet of the person sitting next to you. Now, as a kid, I knew that this would be coming and I knew what I was getting myself into, so I'd make sure it'd be somebody I knew. But there was this one time where uh, my friends weren't there at church with me. And I ended up sitting next to this like strange man that I'd never met before. He was actually brand new to the church and I don't even remember his name now, but he was in his like 40s and I'm like 10 or something. And it's still to this day, this vivid memory of this 40-year-old strange Christian man who just joined our church taking off my shoes and washing my feet in a water basin. And then we would switch places and I would, I would do it for him. After we were done, we'd wash our hands quite well and move to the tables that are set up in the gymnasium or auditorium. And we would eat an entire meal together, a feast. And at the end of that, we would then take the bread and the cup And we would remember that Jesus had died for us. He'd taken away our sins and that we're now a family together and that we serve each other as exemplified by the feet washing and that we're we're all welcomed around the table if we would have faith in Christ and him alone for our salvation. And we would eat and drink and celebrate and long for the day when Jesus would return. As I tell that story, do you get the sense that that was shaping me as a young man? Could you imagine that if you did that regularly, that that would have some kind of identity transforming, shaping effects in your heart and life? So then, as it's often been said, is it just about the message or is the medium also part of the message? Have you heard that phrase before? 
It's not just what you're saying, but how you say it, how you deliver the message can be just as important as the message itself, because oftentimes the medium becomes the message. And so I ask you today, as we read this passage again, we started working on it last week and the week before, does it matter the way we take the Lord's Supper together? Does the ritual, ceremony, and the manner by which we go about it have any significance? Should I be wearing robes? Should we be in a specific posture? Should you be kneeling or standing? Should we use incense, bells, or music? How much should the congregation be involved or not involved? Should I just be eating the bread and the cup and you all watch and it be only me and I as a representative of all of the church take the Lord's Supper on your behalf or should we take it together? How much should we be doing in the actual ceremony itself? Many people have this cross lifting up the bread as an offering to God. Some people pass it out on trays. Some people hand it out in a hallway as you're coming into the door. Some people will have you come up to the front and take the Lord's Supper and it be given to you from a pastor or priest. Some will break off of one large loaf of bread and actually tear that with all of their COVID germs and share that with everybody around. I mean, hopefully they don't have COVID, but you get my, my joke there, hopefully. Some people use a common cup. Some people have little shot glass cups. Some people use bread or crackers or Doritos. Literally, I have had a Doritos bag for my communion at one get-together. Does it matter if we use wine or grape juice or Pepsi? Literally, I have been at a gathering where we use Doritos and Pepsi. You see where that's going? So I ask you, does it matter at all? Or just, is, is there some point where you're like, uh, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. You, you basically have lost the whole Lord's Supper altogether. You've crossed a line. That's the question I want us to address today. It's a little bit more of a practical how-to kind of message. But I do want us to examine God's word and think about how we practice the Lord's Supper. And how do we determine what we do or don't do? Is it from the Bible? Or is it from tradition? Is it a combination of the two? Does one trump the other? How do we think through these matters? Let's read the text, and then I want to walk us through a few questions. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. This is the paragraph of Scripture that we're going to give our time to for the next few weeks. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I will give directions when I come. All right, the uh, one, one kind of idea I want to make sure, as I often say, the big idea. This comes from our church's statement of faith. And here's what it says. This is what we have agreed upon as a church family that we are going to believe and, and write down and say this, this is a, a core conviction of our church. And here's what it says. The scriptures, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, they will forever remain the supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine must be tested. That's your big idea. The scriptures, the word of God, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, they will forever be the supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine must be tested. So the doctrine of the Lord's Supper and the practice that we do, all matters of life, the life of this church and your life should be governed by the word of God. That's the point where you say, amen, church. Everything should be governed by the word of God. Amen. That's what we believe as a church. That's how we want to structure and govern ourselves. So, when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper, we need to realize that the Bible does say how things should be done, and there are examples of how it was done. And then there's a lot of gaps. So we want to start with the things that we can know, and then we want to allow some tradition and some history and experience to inform the things that are somewhat unclear. But today's message is mostly on the things that are clear. And so let's just answer a few simple questions from our text about the Lord's Supper. Where should we take the Lord's Supper? That's the first question. And then I want to ask that question again. Where should we take the Lord's Supper? And then I want to ask when should we take the Lord's Supper? And then I want to ask why we should take the Lord's Supper. We'll finish with the why. So where, where, when, and why? Where should we take the Lord's Supper? Well, in the gathering of the church, do you see that in our text? Look at verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, it's clear according to our passage that they are coming together and it's not just a few Christians, it is the church, the church of believers that is in the city of Corinth. Now, I have always told you as a Bible teacher that you should not just read one passage and pull it out. 
So if you've done this, you'll know that chapter 11 begins a section of this letter that is all about the gathering of the church. And so it should make sense that in the conversation about the gathering of the whole church, not part of the church, but the entire church, when they pray, when they sing, when they do different activities, he's giving instructions about it. And here he's giving instructions about the mealtime. And it says that when you come together as a church, in fact, this phrase, when you come together, happens five times in our passage that I just read to you. And you'll notice that this is the section of scripture, chapters 11 through 14 of 1 Corinthians, that is the longest and most detailed instructions for what churches should do when they come together. Therefore, I suggest that the immediate context of chapter 11, the broader context of chapters 11 through 14, show that Paul is thinking about when the church comes together, that's when you take the Lord's Supper. To make it more clear, I don't think it needs to be made more clear, but to just really hammer this down. The specific problem that he is addressing that we addressed last week was what? You are not taking the Lord's Supper because you are not unified as a church. In fact, some of you are eating the meal of the Lord's Supper while other people haven't even arrived yet. That's the specific issue he brings up that I just read to you. Therefore, I would conclude that the Lord's Supper should be a meal for the whole church when they come together and let's not divide the church up into different parts when we take the Lord's Supper. There are divisions you see in verse 18. Certain people want recognition in verse 19, and so some people are eating at the table and others are probably out in the hallway of this home. Verse 20, because of this, Paul says you're not actually taking the Lord's Supper. Verse 21 shows that they are eating in excess and even getting drunk and that the poor aren't even getting food to eat and are going away hungry. And this is an embarrassment to this church. So I think it's clear that the where of the Lord's Supper in the context of God's word is the church, the whole church. Now, sometimes there's Sundays when pandemics are going on and half the church is, hello, on a screen at home. Sometimes people get sick. The point is, we're not trying to divide this gathering. We're not trying to send certain people home and keep some people here. We're not trying to take the Lord's Supper in a way that's excluding some versus the others. That's what's happening in 1 Corinthians 11. So we can take the Lord's Supper today, I think, with clear consciences, knowing that some people are home today and some people aren't able to gather with us. That happens every week. The point is, is we're not intentionally dividing the body. But when we do divide the body in certain ways for certain functions, let's say a small group, a wedding, a conference, a retreat, a Bible study, a campus ministry on a college. These are not appropriate times, as far as I can understand it, to take the Lord's Supper. And I don't think that this is necessarily like the worst thing in the world. Oh, you took the Lord's Supper at your wedding? When I was early on as a pastor, I actually did do that. There was a couple that asked me, hey, we would like to take the Lord's Supper. Just them two and not the entire gathering of people, just the two of them in front of everybody else. And I did it because I was naive. Now when couples ask me that, I say, no, I'm not going to do that. The Lord's Supper is about the church, not about your marriage. You two as Christians are coming together, but this is about when the whole church comes together, let's bring everybody together. So normally I'll say this, and so if any of you are about to get married or want to ask me to do your wedding, now you'll know what I'm going to say. It's that 
if it's the gathering of Embassy Church at your wedding ceremony and we're all together, then we as a church will take the Lord's Supper together as a part of your wedding celebration. That's fine. But if it's just you up on a stage taking the Lord's Supper, why, why would we do that? That seems to be the exact opposite flow of this passage of Scripture. Wait till everybody can arrive, then take the Lord's Supper together. Not, hey, you two take it while everybody else is not. So there are many different experiences that people have that I'm sure are meaningful when they do the Lord's Supper in what I would call an abnormal and unbiblical kind of way. We don't, as a church, need to go around and act like we're the Lord's Supper police and be like, that church over there took the Lord's Supper in a small group. It's not what I'm trying to get you to think through. I just want you to, to, to look at God's word, make this the supreme standard for how we do life and doctrine and practice, and consider that it is the context of the church that we should take the Lord's Supper. Jesus did not give the Lord's Supper to parachurch ministries or subsections of the church but as a way for, as we saw last week, to bring the whole church together as one body, one loaf, one Lord, one master, one baptism. So that was the first question. Where should we take the Lord's Supper? In the church. Second question, where should we take the Lord's Supper? Well, I want to suggest that the Bible's only examples of giving the Lord's Supper is actually in a meal. Like an actual meal. The title of this sermon is The Supper. It's a supper. And by that we mean an actual meal. I don't know how many of you have meals that are about this big, you know, but probably a lot of us aren't getting filled up off of these very stale wafers and little cups of juice. Now, Going back to our question, does that matter? Is it all just a symbol anyway? Or do the things that we do around the practices that we practice actually form us, train us, disciple us? I would contend they do. And that there are ways about going about the practice that will communicate one thing versus another thing. When Embassy Church first started, we decided that we were going to take the Lord's Supper and we would do it in the context of a meal, and we did it twice a month for quite a while. As a church family, we have actually continued that practice, but less frequently during this COVID pandemic. I want to suggest that as soon as we can possibly do this, and it's free for us to do it in a safe, meaningful way, we should continue the practice of eating meals together and taking the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of that meal. Because there is no other evidence in the Bible and outside of the Bible for early Christian practice other than meals, full-on meals in homes. Isn't it kind of obvious from our practice that they're doing a little bit more than the little things that we typically think of with the Lord's Supper? Some of you are going away hungry. And he's talking about that as a bad thing. Some of you are getting drunk. What? Now that's not a good thing. But the point is, is that they're consuming enough to get drunk. There's enough food at the table for people that have empty stomachs to be full. And for people that are hungry to get their stomachs filled. So our passage in verses 20 and 21, if you just read over it again, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For in eating, one is going ahead of the other with his own meal. And when one goes hungry, another is getting drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in? And some suggest that Paul is actually saying, what you need to do 
You stop having the meal and just eat in each other's houses. This is actually even more argued in verse 33. If you look down at 33 and 34, so then my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. I don't think that Paul is suggesting that the whole meal thing was a bad idea and what we should do is boil it down to a little piece of bread and a, a little cup of juice or wine. I think what he's suggesting is that so then, my brothers, when you come together to do what? Verse 33, eat. Like eat a meal because that's what you do. That's what they did. Did you listen to the the passage Becca read for us? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. The first description of the earliest Christians, what did they do regularly? Break bread. Eat meals in each other's homes and gather regularly, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to praying, to fellowship. And then it specifically says, and to the breaking of bread, which is another one of those shorthand statements for the whole meal that concludes with the bread and the cup. So I think that the encouragement here is wait for each other so you can all be together in the meal and that it was a common meal. His instructions shouldn't lead us to believe that we should now just have our meals at home. It's more of the mindset of like, listen, if you're that hungry, then you should eat at home. Like that's the spirit of the text as far as I'm reading it. The other interesting observation should be that If they took Paul to understand eat your meals at home and not actually gather together to eat a full meal together as a church family, then why did for the next 200 years basically every historical record we have show that Christians kept eating together in homes? Either they just said, forget you, Paul, which seems unlikely, or that that's just not what Paul meant. Paul did not mean go eat at home, and then when you come together, have a small little symbol token of a meal. Meals are significant. I think when we eat a meal together, it's communicating and saying something more than when we just sit individually and pass around and eat the symbol of the meal. The symbol is significant. Doing that is better than doing nothing. But I'm suggesting to you that if we were want to form our church around the Bible as the supreme standard for all matters of life and doctrine, and this is not even debated, this is one of those strange things that basically every scholar I have ever read on this topic, and that is not just a few. I have been obsessed with this topic in a bad way probably. And I have read too many scholarly academic kind of books, and every single one say it is, it is well known and well observed that early Christians for the first 300 years of the church ate an entire meal together that they called communion or the Eucharist or they called the love feast, the agape feast. Love feast doesn't always come out real clear in English. We're like, Ugh. But the, the agape meal, the feast of love, sharing and breaking bread together. I want you to imagine right now having a party, a celebration, the celebration of, of, of a wedding, or the celebration of you having a birthday. Have you ever had one of those celebrations and not had a wonderful meal of good food? Maybe one of the reasons why for so many people that the Lord's Supper is is not as significant and as meaningful is because it's quite somber and solemn. And I think that the way that we want to go about taking the Lord's Supper is in the context of the church, in the context of the meal, so that there is both joy and dignity 
together. And a lot of times I feel like the joy is lost in churches today. The Lord's Supper is not an individualistic, quietly meditating, seriously reflecting, confessing sin practice. It can and should include those things, but that is not its main and primary purpose. It should be more about the joyful celebration of the family of God coming together as a community, proclaiming the death of Jesus as victory over their sin, resurrection from the dead, and the hope that one day Jesus Christ will return and we will eat a real meal with him. He will restore the whole world. The material created world and all that's included in it is good and he's affirming that every time we take the Lord's Supper. He could have told you to remember his death and resurrection by telling a story, couldn't he? Just tell the story again. That's not how he told us to remember him. Remember him by taking a part of this earth. Eat it. Drink it. You're you're sustained every day by bread and water and food and therefore realize that you do not live by bread alone, but you're sustained by my grace and my love and my gospel. So that's our second question. Where should we take it? Where should we take it? How often should we take it? Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If all you had was verse 26, you would at least want to say often. How's that for an answer? Not once. This is not a baptism practice. It's not a one-time ritual ceremony. It is a regular, often ceremony. It is more like the wedding remembrance, you know, the anniversary date than the wedding ceremony. The Jews, however, kept Passover once a year. Some Christians do that as well. They keep communion once a year. Some people do it once a quarter. Some people do it once a month. The early church practice, as best as we can tell, again, if we were just to start with the Bible and say, what example do we see in the Bible, is Acts chapter 2 that was read for you earlier says day by day they were breaking bread in each other's homes which again I think is a a little phrase to talk about the taking of the Lord's Supper in the context of a meal so you can at least go as frequent as day by day that's the most frequent in the Bible or as Acts chapter 20 verse 7 says on the first day of the week they gathered together in the evening And they broke bread together. That's that really interesting story where it's late at night and the Apostle Paul is teaching and there's this guy named Eutychus and he's sitting in a windowsill and he gets really tired and he falls asleep during the sermon. None of you have ever done that, I know. That's just a first century problem. And uh, he fell asleep and he fell out the window. It's It's a great story, but it starts with on the first day of the week, they broke bread together. And oh, by the way, after he goes down and heals Eutychus and makes sure that he's okay, they all gather back together. And then the, the story continues. It says, and then they ate the meal together. That's what they did. They finished the meal. They broke bread on the first day of the week. So at the minimum, it seems like the biblical practice of the early church was once a week. And that's all we have. This is one of those issues that, again, is one of those things that we don't need to go around and be like, you only take once a month. Oh, you're so sub-Christian. You're on the the freshman team. We're varsity Christians. You know, it's it's not that spirit that we want to have. This is a way to do it. And as a church, we have done practices of twice a month. We've done every week. I ask you, embassy, 
Your elders, we give guidance and counsel and we've made suggestions, but as a church, we can take votes. You guys can decide. You can say, look, we want to do it every day. Or we want to do it once a week. We want to do it once a month. This is not something that is as crystal clear as other things in the Bible. I think the best rule of thumb then is let's find a rhythm that encourages us regularly and stretches us at least a little bit. For some of you, taking it weekly, I think, has been a bit of a stretch from maybe other church backgrounds or traditions. You wonder, like, what, what are you doing? And I don't think that we should always just feel comfortable with the Lord's Supper. I think that it should give us comfort, and then it should also be something that challenges us and, and takes us where we're at and that we move even closer into the Lord in our discipleship. So those are a few comments to just say, our text says often, and the rest of the New Testament just says either day by day or once a week. But the assumed assumption is that they practice this on the first day of the week, Sunday, either early in the morning before work, because unfortunately Sunday was not a day off in the Roman Empire. Everybody worked seven days a week. Or they did it late at night, as we saw in Acts chapter 20, as they were gathering for a literal supper, like the end of the day meal, which was the largest meal of the day in that community and culture. So either early, early morning or late at night on every Sunday. That was the practice. Third, or fourth and final question, why? Why does this matter? It matters because, as we'll see later on in this series, verse 26 says, for often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It matters because the gospel matters. It matters because what we're doing is actually proclaiming the death of Jesus, and it's communicating something. It's not just a mere symbol. Symbols are powerful. One little action or one word can sum up the entire way of life for somebody. And it can feel, for some of you, very warm and sentimental, and for others, it can be like a dagger or a knife into your ribs. If somebody, if you're a very patriotic American person, if somebody stomps on an American flag and burns it, I mean, how do you feel? If somebody takes a Bible and throws it in the fire, how do, how do you feel? In, in some ways, you could say, oh, it's just a symbol. But, but symbols aren't just symbols. They're communicating something profound and deep and meaningful. And in some, I, I would want you to think that there's, there's a spectrum for a lot of people probably in, in our church circles and contexts. And that spectrum is magic, the Lord's Supper as magic, like it's magical. It turns magically into the body and the blood of Jesus. This has often been taught in Catholic churches. Versus, oh, there's nothing going on. So much so where it's like, there's probably nothing going on for people that keep trying to say there's nothing going on. Like, there is something going on of significance and substance. And somewhere between those two extremes, I hope that we would find ourselves as a church where it's, it's not magic. The bread and the cup that we take, it is, it is not having some sort of ceremony of turning into the actual body and the blood of Jesus. There are people back through the ages of the church that would have taken the bread and the cup and then put it in their pocket and then taken it home with them and then given it to their sick cow because they thought it would magically heal them. That's where we used to be as a general, broader view of the church. Some people are still there. I would encourage you not to be there. But on the other end, don't go to the other end of the pendulum swing and be like, nothing's happening. We're just kind of going through the motions of eating a little cracker and drinking a little juice. There's something about us gathering together, 
lifting up our voices, agreeing together in song and in prayer and in the bread and the cup to remember that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord. He has given himself, his life for our life. He died the death that you and I deserve. He took our place. He is our substitute. And then when you eat that bread, you're you're participating, it says in 1 Corinthians 10, you're participating in Christ himself. That's more than just, oh, a little ritual routine. There's something real happening, something transforming. There's something that as we do this practice, it's doing something to us. Like me as a young boy washing the feet of that 40-year-old stranger man. This should shape us. This is a identity-shaping practice of the gospel. So friends, if you care about the gospel, if you care about maintaining the integrity of Jesus' life for us, his death on our behalf, his resurrection from the dead, his reigning and ruling over all things, then let's make sure that we keep this practice at the center of our church gatherings in whatever way that may look. If we need to make adjustments because of the pandemic, then we make the necessary adjustments. But I'm longing for the day that masks are off, tables are set, potluck has been a success and there is plenty of food and no one will go home hungry. And we sit around tables, not acting like we love each other, but genuinely loving one another and creating a picture of this is the church family that God sent his son Jesus into the world and died for this. Not just a little drive-by ritual. I've heard of so many strange practices of let's take the Lord's Supper as like a drive-by, like we're doing a COVID test or something. Like, no, no, friends. I'm not going to be out in my house and you drive by and me offer you the elements through your car window. No matter how bad the pandemic gets, we're not going to do that. That is antithetical to the message of the unity of the family of the people of God. So friends, that's what I want us to be thinking about, not just today, but as we go through this series of some of these questions about where and when and how often and ultimately why. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus into the world to rescue sinners and that Jesus' body and his blood and these material objects of bread and cup, they're communicating something. They're preaching and proclaiming that you do care about the material world. You care about humans. You care about our ability to rule over this earth and subdue it and, and have dominion over it and produce things like bread or wine and juice. That these things are redeemed and affirmed by this practice. We're so thankful, God, that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that we can remember him and that you can remember us and that there is a wonderful, beautiful, spiritual, significant action taking place even now as we preach your word, as we sing your praises and we eat your bread and we drink your cup. Lord, this is your supper. It's not ours. Therefore, we want to do it as you have instructed and as you have given us in your word. Help us to do that in love and in charity, with patience, with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.